The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Donald Trump and China play a poor hand on trade. And is Tencent past its prime? These are the questions we'll be delving into on this week's Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Jennifer Saba, and with me is my co-host, Anthony Curry. Hey, Anthony. Hello. The Trump administration and the Chinese government appear to have avoided a trade war, but the way they're doing it is short-sighted and stores up more problems that'll have to be dealt with down the road. Joining us from Washington, D.C., where he's camping out for the next couple of weeks, is our Asia editor, Pete Sweeney. Welcome, Pete. Hey, Jen. Thanks. Happy to be on. All right. So there's been a lot of blustering, a lot of back and forth going uh, between President Donald Trump and Chinese uh, Prime Minister Xi Jinping on this trade deficit. Trump wants China to close what he perceives a $375 billion trade deficit, meaning that the U.S. is importing more from China than China is exporting from the U.S. And so there's been a lot of bluster. They finally sat down to, to sign something. And it, it seems to be kind of meh from the U.S. standpoint. So, Pete, why don't you take us through what exactly that is? Yeah, well, so it's really difficult for me to, since I've gotten here to find anybody who's pleased with the way things have gone. Um, the root of the problem is kind of a this, this misunderstanding on Trump's part about what the causes of economic friction between the countries are. Um, he has, for his whole career, you know, focused on the trade deficit, the idea that, you know, that China is exporting tons of stuff to the United States and importing much, much, much less from, from the United States and that there's, okay. there's imbalance and that China is winning. Um, when you talk to the American business community, of course, they're talking about all these protections that China has for local firms, all this cheap credit that state-owned banks give to state-owned industries to dump products like steel, um, all these kind of nasty things that the Chinese government does to force an actual property transfer and so on and so forth. Um, but okay. Trump is focused on the deficit, and that's where the deal is, um, where China is going to try and import more things like soybeans um, and and oil. You know, and in theory, I guess, export less, you know, rolled steel and, and stuff like that, do less dumping, and that's going to somehow rebalance things. Um, but fundamentally, none of the big issues have been addressed. So, you know, even the American steel industry is sending out emails saying, or at least their lobbying industry saying, you know, China won, Trump zero. Nobody's scoring this very well, and I'm not sure this is the deal we're going to end up sticking with. This is pretty bad from the administration's point of view, given that, you know, Mr. Mr. I know all about steel. Wilbur Ross is the Commerce Secretary. I mean, it just if you have even even one of the big backers of of one of the biggest members of the cabinet um, not being happy, that's just it doesn't smell good at all. Yeah, not to speak like Lighthizer, and you've got even the more hardliners, Navarro. I mean, the fundamental point is there the the pro-China engagement faction in the United States has been eviscerated. There is a absolutely bipartisan consensus that the the relationship needs to be redefined in a very fundamental way. Um, Trump has gone for a very superficial way where, you know, state-owned bureaucrats – I mean, it's just ironic that, like, on the one hand, the United States government is saying, you know, we're not going to grant China, China market economy status because they manipulate in the economy. And then this deal is going to have Beijing basically ordering Chinese companies what to buy and who from. Um, you also had this deal over ZTE, which was violating sanctions with, with North Korea and Iran, uh, pled guilty to it, and then kind of didn't implement the follow-through. And they're going to get let off the – hook apparently with some fines and some firings, which is meaningless for a, basically a state-controlled organization. So Pete, I'm really interested in the ZTE thing. So effectively, Donald Trump has also walked back on that as well. So he at first, you know, 
basically instituted a ban saying that no American company can uh, supply CTE. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. And ZTE is a, is a, a handset maker, right? And all sorts of tele, yeah, among among other things. I mean, basically, it's it's an interesting example of how integrated the supply chains are. Not just CTE, but Apple, anybody who's making equipment. You know, China is this, the workshop of the world. There's and and the U.S. obviously makes a bunch of stuff as well. So it's very difficult to, you know, to pry apart the two supply chains. Um, right. So we the Americans uh, supply a lot of chips. Yeah, ZTE I mean, American companies were going to take a big hit off of this ban off of ZTE. So I mean, I'm not saying that this was a good idea. Going down the tariff route in general is a bad idea. But the point being that a lot of Americans are very angry at this company. You know, for for violating sanctions. Um, and then is apparently given a pass just makes a bad situation well, and, look and, even worse. And the other thing that really jumped out at me about this is uh, Trump basically kind of playing the role uh, of an activist investor saying that he basically wanted to see uh, the board change and, and management change. I mean, that's kind of extraordinary to me that a government can kind of come in and, and say to a, a business, hey, listen, we want to see wholesale changes here. Is that unusual? Well, it's certainly the approach that Beijing prefers to personalize the issue to say, like, this isn't a structural problem caused by, you know, the way the state has run these companies. Um, but it's it's these bad individual people to get tossed out. China uses this solution all the time to kind of duck responsibility for, for structural flaws. Um, it is unusual for the for the states. And certainly it doesn't it doesn't change a lot of stuff, um, you know, in terms of the way that these Chinese telecoms makers behave. Um, but it's 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 yeah, it's it's not making anybody happy, um, you know, given widespread problems. But on the other hand, China has been kind of cooperating on North Korea, apparently. So so that might be part of it. Um, but fundamentally, you know, the, the, the relationship, the big trade irritants, you know, related to intellectual property rights, um, you know, related to the way that China overtly plans to, to substitute substitute imports with with local manufacturer, you know, have not been relieved by this um, and remain remain in play, I think. Okay. So you also um, wrote about a, an interesting uh, solution to this that I think. Instead of um, soybeans and oil, you suggest that um, the Chinese should start crack, cracking down on the illicit use of uh, software licensing, like from Adobe and whatnot. Wait, can you talk a little bit about like how that works in China and why this is a really egregious situation if you um, are a so like if you do software. Well, sure. I mean, country? and this is a big part of the the. This was supposed to be a big part of the whole investigation. The Section Three Hundred One investigation was China's systematic violation of property rights transfers, and I mean, and and that has been a huge issue, especially with software. Um, you know, Microsoft Windows, Office products, uh, Adobe Creative Suite. You know, the, these programs have been hacked and duplicated throughout China. Like uh, st stats show that seventy percent of the installed software in China is is unlicensed. That's um, it. That's this incredible. There's massive economic value. Yeah, but I mean, unfortunately, Trump is is more focused on the manufacturing side and returning the United States back to these glory days of manufacturing than focusing on this services exports, which is what the U.S. is really good at. Um, but China has not, you know, China <laughs> has not been cooperative on that at all. And we're talking about potential trade in billions of dollars. I mean. China imported, I think, like $1 billion of software services back in 2016. Um, that's half as much as Japan, and China has 11 times the population. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so right. there's a lot of room for growth here. Um, there's a lot of makeup money. And, and the, the other thing to point out is just trade-wise, if you're going to manipulate the stats, it's difficult to import that much oil or soybeans quickly. I mean, these are physical products. You can't just kind of ship them across. Mm-hmm. But China could just buy a subscription for every man, woman, and child uh, <laughs> right. in the country for Adobe Creative Suite. And like that'd be a big chunk of change. So, um, but, but why why would China want to do that? What, what benefit is there in China from doing any of that? Well, for one thing, there's very little downside. I mean, because of the the Chinese executives' reluctance to pay for software, I mean, it has absolutely stifled the development of a domestic industry. I mean, there are no big Chinese software brands as such that people buy. Uh, China writes a lot of programs that, that, that are downloaded for free, like apps, games, um, stuff like that. But what they don't produce is operating systems, enterprise class software, you know, databases. Um, what these companies have done instead is either pirate stuff, which is full of security holes, um, like hacked versions, or they've done it themselves, you know, hiring, they've taken advantage of cheap labor costs to hire cheap programmers to to build a bunch of like do-it-yourself word processors and stuff like that. And the result has been kind of disastrous, extremely inefficient, um, you know, and 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 that's been a big drag on on the competitiveness and productivity of these companies. So there's really not a lot of downside, but uh, Xi Jinping is focused on the security risks of using foreign software and falsely believes that like if it's made in China, it must be more secure. Now, obviously, you know, leaks from WikiLeaks have shown that Huawei, for example, China's big national champion, was very hackable. Um, so I don't think that holds water, um, but it doesn't seem like either side is, is pushing that at present. Maybe they should. Well, it sounds like it's it's very much a, a meeting of short-sighted minds on this thing. <laughs> well, China is hoping this is where it ends up, right? But I mean, the problem is that they have focused on cultivating certain personalities in this administration, you know, Trump, Jared Kushner, Mnuchin, perhaps. Um, but what they, they, they're missing is that like this is still a democracy and the Democrats, the Republicans, even the right wing, you know, the there's nothing but hawks in the rest of the country. So, you know, Trump might well have inked a deal with China that the rest of the country is not ready to endorse, um, which begs the question of, of what's going to happen in the next phase of negotiations, which could be, if anything, even more acrimonious. Okay, Pete, that is fascinating. I'm sure you'll be covering this. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much, guys. And now let's hand the mics over to our colleagues in Hong Kong to give us the lie of the land on Tencent. Thanks, Anthony. Has Tencent peaked? That's a question investors have been asking in recent months about the Chinese giant. It's still one of the world's most valuable companies with half a trillion dollars in market capitalization. And China today would grind to a halt, I think, without WeChat, the Tencent messaging app, which boasts a billion users. But as of mid-May, the shares are down more than a tenth from their record high in January. And that's wiped tens of billions of dollars off its valuation. I'm joined by our China technology columnist, Robin Mack, to look at what's going on. Hi, Robin. Hi. Hi. Why are the concerns about Tencent, do you think? Yeah, so in recent months, you know, there has been, you know, genuine worry that the company has overreached. So it has been investing huge sums into areas like payments, cloud, uh, music and video streaming, bricks and mortar, and that has yet to yield any type of um, return or profits um, for the time being. And there's also this worry that their main gaming business um, is has you know hit some sort of um, decline because you know their most profitable games are PC games, and there's um, you know this trend of lots of gamers going from PC to mobile games, which is you know, very hit-driven, and um, people are just not spending as much on games. 
so while we think of uh, Tencent sometimes just in connection with WeChat, which is an enormously powerful app platform and messaging platform, in fact, actually the gaming is the more significant contributor at the moment. Right. So Tencent's main uh, revenue stream is from its games, which are, you know, very popular and, and you know, quite lucrative. Um, but they also have other businesses such as, you know, advertising, for example. But, you know, there's a limit to that. It's a chat app. You can't flood, you know, a messaging app with ads. You know, so that business is not going to grow that quickly. That's interesting. And yet, recently Tencent produced first quarter results. And actually, when we look at those, incredible growth still, 48% growth in revenue, 29% growth in earnings, at least on the preferred measure of earnings, which Tencent uses, which adjusts for various complicating factors. Um, does that sort of put to bed some of these concerns? I think so. I mean, I mean, the first quarter results, it does still show that, you know, mobile gaming is um, still going very strong. So they have one game called Honor of Kings, um, you know, and it was so popular that, you know, even the state newspaper put out editorial saying it was too addictive. So that's sort of how popular this game is. Um, and it seems like this game is still driving quite a lot of the, um, you know, mobile games revenue. And in most industries, people would kill for 48% revenue growth. How can you be a company this big and still growing at that speed? Um, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, they have a huge uh, network, of uh, through WeChat. So, you know, every time they have a game out, they can push it out to a billion users. And we need really to talk about Fortnite. This is the gaming phenomenon of the moment. And in your most recent piece for Breaking Views, you argued that actually Fortnite is a sort of weapon now for Tencent. What is Fortnite exactly? And why does it matter yeah, so much for so them? So Fortnite is an incredibly... Um, popular and successful game that's, you know, it's launched in the US and a couple of other markets. So it's not in China yet. But so far, it's become, you know, one of the most popular and uh, lucrative games out there. You know, it has something like 45 million registered users. Um, it's one of the top grossing games, you know, in the iOS store now. Um, and the reason is because, you know, first of all, the game is quite fun, and it appeals to, you know, lots of casual gamers and lots of um, serious gamers. And the second one is that it's free to play. Um, and you can play this on your phone, on your PC, on an Xbox. So the appeal of this game is actually quite far reaching and wide. Now, Tencent has um, a stake in the company that developed this game, but they also have the exclusive rights to bring this game to China. And if it does as well as it did abroad in China, then I think this will be, you know, a huge thing for Tencent. So that's interesting. So actually, it validates two uh, things that we see in the Tencent strategy. One is that Tencent can often serve as a sort of gateway to China for foreign companies. And the second thing, I guess, is that we've looked before at Tencent acquisitions or investments, and they often favor this sort of minority investment approach. And here, as you say, they're not the guys behind right. Fortnite, but they do seem to be able to benefit from it anyway. Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, and there's also, you know, a third thing, um, which is that there is an esports angle. So the market for watching, you know, other people competitively play video games is huge in China now. Um, and Fortnite is actually one of the most uh, streamed video games on online. Um, so, you know, there's reason to believe that Tencent can develop 
um, you know, Fortnite into a very popular esports game as well. I have to say, I find that completely baffling, <laughs> but I guess I'm not the target audience. We should probably explain as well a bit. Fortnite is a sort of classic shoot 'em up in a way, right? You're you're trapped on an island. There's a hundred other people, and you sort of battle it out until you're the last man standing. That's the format. Yeah, so that's. I mean, it's known as the battle royale format, but that's basically it it is quite fun because you you know you can run around the island and collect weapons you can build things so there is an element of minecraft to it for example so i mean it sounds like from what you say there that the video gamers at uh, tencent's shenzhen headquarters continue to shoot the lights out uh, at least you know when it comes to the financial results robin mac thanks very much thanks guys that's our show for the week Thanks to Quentin Webb, Robin Mack and Pete Sweeney for coming on the show. We doff our hats to our producers, Freddie Joyner, Ben Kellerman and James Cameron. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes. And please do share your opinions about our show. Join us again next week for another edition. <laughs>